really don't know what to say after hearing that. I, uh, I think we need to all remember that folks that come up here uh, want to honor the Lord with their lives and their gifts, and certainly that was on display today. But just because you have a gift uh, doesn't mean that things come automatically or even easily. I have no idea, because I do not play an instrument, uh, how many hours went behind what we just heard. Uh, but in order to bless us, and we're talking about blessing today, in order to bless us the way we were blessed just now, I'm sure thousands of hours have gone uh, into the practice of that instrument. Uh, God wants us to refine our skills, no matter what gifts he has given us. Uh, it doesn't mean things will be easy, automatic, and hard work won't be necessary. And uh, I just want to remind us of that and be thankful to the Lord for many of our students, many of you that have certainly um, displayed that passion for serving the Lord and giving all that you have uh, for him and uh, investing uh, in, in him and his, in his work. Now, I, I heard something very distressing last night, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I found out that I was doing very poorly. It came through uh, the grapevine to me, and uh, I, in the words of a great English statesman, Winston Churchill, uh, the rumors of my demise have been greatly overstated, all right? And, uh, and so I'm here, and I'm doing well. I'm okay. Um, I did have surgery. I, uh, I had the recovery that was expected. Things went very well initially, and they told me on this kind of treatment on the liver, expect that you're going to have, in a few days, a couple of really bad days. Uh, I don't know why that, that works that way, but uh, those of you that uh, know a little bit about the anatomy may be able to explain that. I don't know, but uh, that's what happened to me. And so I'm glad to be back, and I'm glad to be with you uh, today. All right. Um, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 2, and I might say just at the outset, uh, this is a psalm that I have preached uh, many times through the years. Um, I actually, those of you guys in seminary uh, studying for ministry, I actually developed my first outline of Psalm 2 for homiletics class uh, many years ago uh, when I was, you know, young. All right. And, uh, and the professor said, this is a good outline. And so I changed it over the years, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's, uh, it's been a, a blessing to be able to share uh, insights. And, you know, even when you're familiar with a passage of Scripture, uh, you find new things all the time, and, and God speaks to you and gives you new uh, insights and relationships to other truths that you have come to understand in a better way. That's what uh, spiritual growth is all about, especially in the Word. So if you're in Psalm 2, let's read it together. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. 
Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare to the decree, The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt dash them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. I could have made some comments along the way about certain words that were there. Uh, I'm not only going to comment on this one uh, as we introduce this psalm. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Psalm 2 is talking about the raging nations and the rebellion of the Gentiles against the Lord and against his anointed. We get to the end of the psalm and it becomes not just a matter of nations, but it becomes something very personal. It's an admonition to every one of us uh, to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we know, the end of the story, right? Uh, We're not sitting in the place of the psalmist where he's looking forward to things that are going to happen. uh, And he's looking forward to things that have already been fulfilled. But mostly, he's looking forward to things that will yet be fulfilled even beyond us. But what he didn't see... He didn't see Jesus, and we do. And uh, we're to put our faith uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word there, uh, trust, is a word some translate take refuge. It's, a, it's used about 152 times, I think, uh, in the Old Testament. It's a common word for putting faith in the Lord. Uh, it's also used to lean on or rely upon or take refuge in. It's used that way. And that's what it means to come to the Lord, is to flee to him, run to him, trust him, embrace him, we're going to see uh, before we are done today. And so Israel is blessed with the unfailing promises of God. She's blessed to be the nation chosen to bear the Messiah, and therefore becomes a blessing uh, to the entire world, as it says in the Abrahamic Covenant. Psalm 2 is very important in that it's a messianic psalm. There are at least 20 quotations or allusions in the New Testament to these 12 verses. It was written by David. We learn that in Acts chapter 2. And this psalm is not necessarily describing a general rebellion. We alluded to that, though it does apply. But more specifically, Psalm 2 describes man's opposition to Israel and man's opposition to Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah himself, the the anointed he's called in our text. And so we have here a focus on the nations in verse 1, a focus on individuals in verse 12, and the application is to all of us. The heathen or the nations imagine a vain thing. If they think that God's plan can be thwarted, if God can be undermined, uh, they are very foolish. Romans chapter 11, verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they're beloved for the Father's sake. What's that mean? That means today, Israel's in unbelief. Uh, They are enemies of the gospel today, but touching 
the eternal purposes of God, the election of God, and God's plan and promise uh, to them, uh, they'll be regathered and all the promises that have been made in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. Not one of them uh, will fail. Now, regardless of what you hear from media, there are no authentic, identifiable Palestinian people who have historically occupied the West Bank or any other part of the current border of Israel so as to have any present claim of ownership. But if there could be found such a people, it wouldn't matter because the land belongs to God and he can give that land to whomever he chooses. He is the sovereign one. And so we hear a lot about pressure on Israel. There's cries all the time to carve up the Holy Land. It's a continuing cry. In fact, nearly every world leader and certainly every American president since the Six-Day War, except Donald Trump, has demanded Israel give up significant amount of territory. They, they want them to reduce their territory significantly and uh, to return to the indefensible borders uh, that they had prior to the Six-Day War in 1967. Now, this may be things that you don't follow, but let me just say, uh, when Jordan ruled the West Bank, how many of you, if I said, do you know what the West Bank is? It won't surprise me if I don't get many hands. How many of you know what the West Bank is? All right, good. Maybe 20% of you just raise your hand. All right, uh, it's not just a, a little piece of territory. I used to cut a bank for my uncle, you know, where the grass whip, it was so, you know, it was like 50 feet uh, we're not talking about that. We're talking about an area in the middle of Israel that will go from Jordan and only leave a sliver of land by the Mediterranean Sea. It will divide the land completely, and they will be indefensible. And so when you hear about the West Bank, understand it's a significant amount of territory, and it makes a big, big difference. And so, okay, Jordan ruled that prior to the Six-Day War. And when Jordan ruled the West Bank as part of their nation, why did they not create a Palestinian state right then? Jordan wants that Palestinian state. Why didn't they do it? Well, the answer, I think, is very simple. This is not a movement so much to help a victimized people as it is an attempt to move against the Lord and against his anointed. Now you say, wait a minute, uh, Jesus isn't recognized in Israel. You know, a lot of the things that are happening today are happening behind the scenes, we're going to see, and it's a satanic conspiracy uh, to uh, really keep the fulfillment of God's promises from taking place. It was an attempt to keep Jesus from the cross originally. No, we're not going to let that happen. We're going to wipe out uh, the messianic seed. We're not going to let the seed be born. And after he's born, we're going to kill the babies. We're going to keep that from happening. And Satan was behind all of that. And today he is behind every effort to thwart the fulfillment of God's ultimate promises that will bring in the millennial kingdom with Israel as the lead nation and Jesus sitting upon the throne in Jerusalem. And that's what's happening. The heathen rage and nations are set against Messiah. But let's not miss the point that the Lord's anointed is connected to Israel, connected to the land, and connected to Zion. 
You see, Messiah is a king. His dominion is worldwide or the uttermost part of the earth, as it says. Messiah is priest. He's set on the holy hill of Zion, and he rules in righteousness. He shall sit upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, a king priest. The Lord is in his holy temple, that all the earth keeps silence before him. Messiah is a judge. He will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And Messiah is the Son. Messiah is Jesus, our Lord. I think it's important to point out and to understand that Messiah is the ultimate heir to the promises of David. In thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, God says to David. Thy throne shall be established forever. Well, how can you have a throne established forever if you don't have someone that is a forever person to sit on that throne. It calls for God. It calls for Jesus, the Son of God, to be sitting upon that throne. The throne of David is therefore an eternal throne to be occupied by the seat of David, the Lord Jesus. Well, Psalm 2 describes the attitude and actions of God against the prideful rebellion of not only kings and nations, but all men. You can't rebel against the natural or moral laws of God without great consequence. And so the psalm divides into four parts, with each part representing another speaker. We see all rebellion against God is vain and brings his hand of judgment in the end so clear. In verses 1 to 3, we see the action of the nations, the rebellious nations, the rebels themselves. Why do the heathen rage? The heathen are the goyim, the nations, or the Gentiles. We ask ourselves, uh, why is the world in such a state of turmoil? Even the worldly people, even the lost people of our day, recognize that these are unprecedented times and things very unusual are happening and the world is out of control. Well, the problem is not environmental or political or social or psychological. The problem is that men are sinners and separated from God. We see a degenerating society and world. Where did it begin? The conception of the rebellion. Imagine a vain thing. It begins in the mind. Imaginations of men are an exercise in futility. Their thoughts are emptiness, vanity. The word imagine is the same word as we translate meditate in Psalm 1. By the way, did you know that Satan delights in controlling education? Does that surprise you? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're in a place where God is honored and the Word of God is honored as well and where you're taught biblical principle. That's not true in most places of education today, even in places that have been historically called Christian. One writer said, day after day, young people are subjected to the bombardment of naturalism with all of its animosity to Christianity. In the formative years of their lives, or at least during the period of their education, when their ideas are crystallizing, they must listen and absorb these ideas of man, the world, and religion. With these facts before them, why do we wonder that Christianity has so little influence over our young people? Walter Lippmann, 1941. Have things gotten better since 1941? Absolutely not. 
Uh, they have not. And education is more and more under the control uh, of the evil one. The conspiracy of the rebels take counsel together. There is a conspiracy. It's not the communist conspiracy, the Catholic conspiracy, the Illuminati, the Council on Foreign Relations, or the World Bank, or the leaders of the New World Order, or the Great Reset, which we ought to be most concerned with. It's the satanic conspiracy that ought to concern us because the devil is behind worldwide opposition to God and the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. There is a satanic conspiracy for the minds of men. You know, it doesn't matter how many people agree, God's not interested in the polls. And by the way, I am getting so sick and tired of hearing about our democracy being undermined. May I say it clearly? I do not believe in democracy. America was not established as a democracy. We are a constitutional republic. And that's why we have two senators in every state. Like in Wyoming, two senators and only one representative? Why is that? That's to protect the small states. I could go on and on about that. We, are, we have a system that protects the opposition, that protects those that have a different contrary view, and they stay within the bounds of law, and we protect them in doing that. Oh, we do not believe in mob rule. Did you know that in 1945, the Army Handbook, World War II, stated that democracy is evil. Every one of our soldiers in 1945 was given a handbook that said we are not fighting for democracy because democracy is used to change systems. Mobs take over. The minorities are excluded. Baptists end up in prison in Virginia. That's why we have the First Amendment. That's not in the message. Nowhere. Somewhere between the lines. Men won't change. They've set themselves. They've made up their minds and are determined to pursue their plans against the Lord and against His anointed, against Jesus. The fight is against God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet it will be doomed to failure. Notice the character of the rebellion. In verse 3, it's vocal, saying, it's destructive, break their bands asunder and cast away. Men don't want to be controlled. They don't want to follow God. They want to be free to roam without any parameters, rules, guidelines, or standards. It can't be successful. It's a vain thing. It can't obtain freedom. People think they can rebel without consequences. Well, it's Adam's freedom that made him a slave. Break their bands asunder. I remember working in seminary time, working in a sheet metal part of a factory, and I took a forklift and picked up a large stack of sheet metal, and as I went in, I got my forks too high, broke the bands, spilled all of that sheet metal all over. Now, you might think that's a small problem. It's not a small problem. It was a big problem for me. Uh, not only did I damage some goods, but... Uh, I had to pick up every piece of that, and uh, it was like they were like knives picking them up. And so uh, that's what happens 
when we decide to throw off all the restraints of God and live for ourselves and live the way we want, uh, it's a very dangerous future. I haven't got time to really say much, but over 10 years ago, I found an article in the Wall Street Journal, The War Against Girls, and it was written by uh, a woman researcher in India, and uh, she said, 105 boys are born for every 100 girls, and this ratio is biologically ironclad. Now, girls, don't feel slighted. There's more of you here today than there are guys, all right? And, uh, but that's true, and it could be, I don't know why, but why God designed it that way, but it could be because men are the protectors and should be the first ones to go down, all right? But uh, I don't know that that's the case. 105 uh, to 100. But what happened, amniocentesis came into the 70s, and now you can predict in the womb what a child's sex is. And in India, they started advertising better 500 rupees today amniocentesis charge than 5,000 rupees later. And for 30 years, 163 million babies during that period of time worldwide had been aborted because they didn't want to give birth to girls. It was too costly. And so, there's great consequence. It was called the sex test in India. And she concluded this, historically societies in which men substantially outnumber women are not nice places to live. They're unstable and sometimes violent. Well, can you believe that there are some places in China the ratio is 150 to 100? In India, 121 to 100. A lot of men running around in clans without women and uh, nothing better to do than to be violent and rebellious. You see, you can't violate God's laws and be immune to consequences. Think about what's happened in America with this national scourge uh, of abortion. Uh, There are a lot of chairs not set up in the back. I wonder why. There are people aren't buying products. I wonder why. Uh, Social Security is in trouble. I wonder why. Even economically, God is saying, okay, you want it that way? I don't have to directly come and bring judgment. You're bringing the judgment upon yourselves by violating my laws. So then we have the attitude of the father toward rebellion. What is the attitude? He laughs at the absurdity in verse 4. Proverbs 1 says, I'll laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not hear. This is a laugh of judgment. God laughs at the UN. He laughs at man who lives for himself without restraints. He, He laughs at the politician who thinks that he can build a utopia through government. I took a little karate when I was early college and before I came to Maranatha a couple years. And, and, uh, and so uh, I, one time I was matched up with a, a six-foot-six brown belt, and I was just beginning, basically, you know, early belts. And I remember where I was exactly at that time, but I remember him. And uh, I remember the absurdity of trying to hit that guy. 
I mean, long legs, long arms, and I'm never going to forget that look on his face, that smile like, you think you're going to hit me? You're, you're never going to hit me. And I didn't, but he sure did hit me, all right? And, uh, and I, I remember that beating that I took that day. And, uh, and so all I'm saying is, is this, there are some things that are so absurd. If you think that is absurd, think about puny man that's been created by a an omnipotent God that thinks he's going to do anything to thwart the promises and plan of God. It's ridiculous. And yet, man continues to try. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The word set is the word installed. It's done. It's prophetic, but in God's mind, it is done. No contingencies, no uncertainties. Jesus Christ is coming in like manner that he was taken into heaven. Why stand you gazing into heaven? This same Jesus was taken up for you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back and he will be installed as king and king of kings. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. He's coming back to the same place that he left in like manner descending. All will see him. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall weep and wail uh, because of him, shall wail because of him. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. Psalm 102, 16. The authority of the Son over all men is established. He's a victorious Savior. Savior. I will declare to the decree, the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This uh, particular phrase is used several times in the New Testament, uh, that particular quote. Uh, one of the times, it's in Acts chapter 13 and verse 33, it says this, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. In that context, the resurrection is connected with this statement from Psalm 2. I know that there are various ways of attacking uh, this particular interpretation, but let me sh share with you what I believe it's talking about. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God. He wasn't made to be the Son of God at resurrection. He wasn't made the Son at the resurrection. But he was certainly publicly declared to be all that he claimed to be and all that God said he was at the resurrection of his, of his life, out of that tomb. The tomb is empty, and Jesus came out, and he's with the Father, and that guarantees that he's coming back to do exactly what he said he's going to do, and this psalm says he will do uh, in the future. The resurrection, it's the resurrection that authenticated Jesus as the Son. He's been raised and seated on high. He'll be the universal ruler and judge, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Again, the resurrection is God's public declaration that all the promises in his Son will be fulfilled. I declare, thou art my Son. That includes the promise of the millennial rule that's worldwide and from Zion and Jerusalem 
ask of me and I will give thee. David was never promised such an extensive rule. This is the sole prerogative of Messiah. And we read in the book of Revelation, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There will be a great tribulation, as we know. The day of the Lord is coming after the rapture. And there are not adequate terms to describe the calamity of that day. Jesus will come. The loftiness of men should be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men should be made low. And the Lord alone should be exalted in that day, and the idols he shall abundantly abolish. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, when he shall arise to shake terribly the earth. Again, Isaiah says in chapter 13, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place, and the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day, in the day of his great vengeance. He's coming. He's coming to judge. It's very clear in this psalm. We could go to the New Testament. We could look at Jude. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It sounds to me like he's coming with ten thousand of his saints. That sounds to me like maybe it's us. Are we going to come back and fight for him and fight with him? You know what I, what I think about us coming back with him? It's true, we will. And uh, I, I believe that we're kind of like unnecessary backup. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and by the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Does that sound like he really needs us to do any fighting? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there were none with me. I will tread them in my anger, I will trample them in my fury. Their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Alone, he says, alone, he says. I'm doing the fighting. You stand back there and watch. And so God in heaven laughs at their attempts to withstand his power. There's going to be a day of great rejoicing for us as we watch his rule and righteousness and participate in it. Finally, there's the admonition of the psalmist for submission to the Son. It says, Be wise. Be wise now, therefore, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Attempting to obstruct his plan, to thwart his plan, is not wise. Be wise. Be humble. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Fear him with your words. Weigh your words. Watch your works. Work diligently for him. He'll reward your work. Rejoice in his works. Tremble in his greatness. And then be quick to embrace the Son. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. A kiss is a symbol of close relationship. I like to say it's a call here to embrace the Son of God. Lest he be angry and you perish from the way. 
There's no other alternative but the kindling of God's wrath if the Son is not received and embraced. There's no other alternatives. His wrath is kindled but a little. Where do you think the full expression of his wrath would take us? (coughs) Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And so the question is, what will you do with Jesus? He's the Son. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Embrace his person and work. I like uh, John chapter 5. In fact, it's my opinion uh, that John chapter 5 is one of the strongest arguments in the entire Bible for the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Check it out. It says, For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as... Honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth the Son honoreth not, uh, not the Son, honoreth not the Father which has sent him. And then it gives the invitation. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Embrace the Son. Embrace his plan for you. Say with Paul, what will you have me to do, Lord? Lord, what will you have me to do? Ask him that today. Ask him that for the future. Ask him that for your life. Lord, what's your purpose? What do you want me to do? How can I best glorify you with my life? I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, crown him, crown him, Lord of all. That's the Jesus of Psalm 2. Embrace him. Father, thank you for your word today. May we leave here today motivated to give our Savior, the Lord Jesus, our all. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.